You, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. We are with Chip Jacobs. Um, thank you so much for coming back on the show, Chip. Um, we're here to talk about, well, so pretty exciting news. His book, Arroyo, came out in paperback recently. And then his newest book, The Darkest Glare, was also uh, pretty recently released as well, which is, a, a, I guess you could categorize it as a true crime. Uh, yep. it's, a, it's a nonfiction book. So uh, I, you know, I love this book. I, I was excited to read it and I, I kind of devoured it. And it is such an un real story um maybe you could just briefly without any spoilers tell people um a bit about the book and and how you came to meeting um jerry who is a you know prime figure in the book itself sure i the genesis of the book uh was in 1998 just around the time the whole monica Lewinsky scandal um dominated the news and um I had left the newspaper job where I was an investigative reporter to work on my first book about my uncle, a biography, but I was still freelancing, still rather insecure about my decision, missed journalism very badly, and, you know, was doing stories on the side. And this source of mine I'd met at the Daily News who just served up one front page tip after another I, um, uh, and had helped me get one of the biggest stories of my career that led to the downfall of a councilman who'd been the odds on favor to become mayor of LA. It's feeling really good. Wanted the next thing, you know, we get, we're, you know, all writers are vampires. We want to, you know, find the, find the next life to go after. And he goes, did you know, out of the blue, he said this on Hollywood Boulevard, it was kind of like a star Wars bar scene of weirdos walking down there. And this homeless guy with a scruff and a banjo that didn't even have all the strings seemed in a big hurry. I mean, I'll never forget. He passed and Jerry Snyderman says this Jerry was a, by now, like a late fifties developer activist goes, did you know I once had a double murderer chasing me? And that's something that catches your attention. Sure. Even on the Boulevard. <laughs> I said, okay, you're just like seeing if I'm paying attention rather than being distracted by all the sights and sounds of this urban, you know, tableau, tableau. And, uh, he, you know, uh, proceeded to say, no, it's true. My, my wife said it killed the old me. My ex-wife said it killed the old me, destroyed my trust. We went to lunch. He still kept at it. I didn't really believe him. I thought he was exaggerating something, mm -hmm. which he could sometimes do. Being a fabulous, the storyteller, trying to impress me how cool he was because he was kind of a nerdy, brilliant guy. And we got into this game where it goes, uh, you know, you go down, you collect the court records, you come back. You talk to this person, you come back. And um, what I realized within a few months was not only was he right about what he said, he didn't understand the full universe of terrible, strange creatures skulking around him during this period and became you know, the source of this book. You know, I mean, it was like 22 years in the making. Ironically, I had a producer that Jerry knew somehow that initially was down there in the hall of records in downtown LA researching with me. Mm -hmm. And he got bored quickly and <laughs> left before he got to the good stuff. Um, one of the really dismaying 
things that happened to me, Kyler, is when I went down there to look at the breadth of records, most of them had been poached. Somebody, somebody is either misfiled. Somebody was sloppy, right? Um, Not comprehensive, or somebody just didn't want to have their name in these things. Yeah, Clarence stole them, and this happens more than you think. Where somebody doesn't want something in the public record, pre-digitized, they will Mm -hmm. just go cage them and then go throw them in the trash can. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I I, I learned the basics, and it was this. In the late 70s, Jerry was a geeky uh, prodigy space planner, which is like an interior architect that will go inside a building, develop a space plan you know, for how it's laid out, because many architects don't do that. They're worried about the... Mm -hmm you know, structure. And, um, you know, uh, it was a very good business, especially because of the economy in the 70s. People weren't building new buildings. They were reconfiguring old offices. So Jerry is 27. He's the youngest guy in his own booming firm. But because he looks so young and and many clients confused him as the intern or the bosses (laughs) or a lackey, he hired this older, suave, uh, charismatic, excellent salesman he knew from his previous corporate space planning job, where he, Jerry felt very oppressed. And, um, you know, they start off um, on the west side of LA, they move, as they do well, to a mansion on the outskirts of something called Miracle Mile um, District, which is a kind of posh shopping area, um, goes back to the beginning of LA, uh, you know, auto-centric development, mm-hmm. and they just crushed it, you know. But this older partner named Richard Kasparov, I changed his last name to protect his family, uh, wanted to take a shortcut. And he wanted to go outside of their white collar space planning services and start offering construction services. And that is going into a whole nother world when you're dealing with roughneck construction guys. Most of them are nine to five blue collar American working class heroes to quote John Lennon, mm-hmm. some aren't. Some don't take being cheated well. Uh, Richard ended up defrauding Jerry um, for many different reasons. I'll let people get into in the book. He also defrauded this contractor they brought in to get them wealthier faster than a normal growth cycle. And the chaos occurs. And we start seeing, you know, uh, a business is blown up, murder for contract ring develop. um, And Jerry who had grown up in an upside down kind of childhood, never touched the gun before, barely watched even any police shows as a kid. All of a sudden he's, he's in the middle of a story that the Coen brothers or uh, uh, Elmore Leonard uh, couldn't have even imagined. Yeah. And uh, it changed his whole life. And I think the incident haunted him into the grave. So that, that's a story. It's really about, you know, ambition, uh, lust for land, um, how you react to a monster in your midst, and um, also, you know, how mental illness, um, you know, doesn't just um, prompt someone to grab an AR-15 and go mow down innocent people. Mm-hmm. Often they are the victims of mm-hmm. violent crime. And that's what happened here. Yeah. I mean, it was like, like you said, it was fascinating to see um, Jerry, you know, as a, as a young man. And then when you, when you talk about him later, it's like two different people. There's a, there's a distinct line and you see the transition happening as he's, and we'll let people read the book as he's kind of been hiding, um, 
and and scared for his life and his family's life. It's, it's incredible what this what this thing did to him. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's it a, it's yeah. And I so I'm curious about um like like you we, we talked about that you see some similarities between 1979. Uh, like the real real estate, the book, like yeah. things that happen in the book, and today, I'm I'm curious your perspective on on that. What what do you kind of see that aligns together? I'm curious your thoughts on that. There was a classic movie called Network um, from the late '70s, where I really encourage people to go watch mm-hmm. yeah, because movie. It, it does typify this um, sort of disenchantment with the American way of life that we're being manipulated. I hate to use the term rigged, but it is sort of rigged. And we're, we're not so much um, being given uh, the chance for liberty, happiness, and uh, upward mobility as being sold Coca-Cola and Chevrolets. And don't complain about it and just be happy with your little pie mm-hmm. while murder is happening. Uh, government is becoming more corrupt. Corporations are actually becoming the real government. Oh, absolutely. In in this movie, the network anchor, a guy named Howard, by the way, just like in my book, (laughs) the bad guy, um, he, uh, he says he incredible. I mean, I think it's one of the best written movies ever. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he's this newscaster is kind of coming unhinged and he goes, I want you to go to your windows, throw them open and stick your head out and say, I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. That, that was a lot of the spirit in my book of these, uh, of the criminals that felt, you know, uh, they lived in one LA where there was no opportunity and uh, the people that had full of opportunity had, had defrauded and cheated them and kept them down. You know, there, uh, there was a belief that the American dream was, uh, you know, uh, uh, fraying at the edges and becoming a nightmare. And I think we're seeing that today. It's almost like a generational um, concept that every 30 years or so, people need to scream and yell and say, you know, everything I was taught in school is kind of is BS or it's, we're being controlled by higher forces and we feel powerless. And I, mm-hmm. I actually think a lot of the reason what happened on January 6th did is because a feeling of depression and powerlessness. Pe- most people that were there, their lives were not going great. Right. You know, um, I feel like in the late 70s, it wasn't necessarily because of race, but that was part of it. You know, I think this group of folks felt they were being displaced and ignored. The system had given them the shaft when they'd given the system their tax money and their belief, mm-hmm. and their patriotism. I think that's what's going on now. You know, I, I, um, I don't think there's actually that in some ways big a line between the Black Lives Matter movement and then the MAGA people, except the Black Lives pe- people say, well, the system squashes down in the first place, whereas the MAGA people go, well, the system forgot about us is mm-hmm. ne- and is now emphasizing, you know, um, tyranny of the minority. There is an anger that you saw in the late 70s. And yeah. I lived in L.A. and uh-huh. I felt I got chased by not one by two road ragers. I, yeah, the beginning of your book, it, it you um, you go into that, which <laughs> terrifying. It was. I, I, that was the besides. Um, <laughs> that was one of the closest I ever felt like I was coming to my own demise. It, it, <laughs> yeah. it was, and but it was all around us. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, when I later find out where Howard was creating his boutique murder for hiring. 
It was not far from where me and my troublemaking buddies were buzzing around. It wasn't far from where my aunt would live. I mean, this wasn't happening, you know, uh, on a Hollywood set. It was happening in real life Pasadena and L.A. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I one thing, you know, people have asked me, why did you stick with this book for so long? The collision of different areas and classes were so fascinating to me. And, you know, you you had Howard coming from the east. Uh, where his buddies lived on the other side of the county line. It wasn't, uh, it was a very bleak place where there wasn't the glamour of LA. Mm -hmm. You had Gary coming from North Hollywood, LA, which is nothing like the real LA. And then Richard, the the victim, and also the, you know, in a way, one of the antagonists in the story, he came from West LA, where money is not a problem, expectations are high, and privilege is uh, your birthright. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you took went to Vegas and said, if you have these three people, what are the odds Jerry is going to outfox and outlast them? He would have been the hundred to one shot. I, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. So, you know, I I just like that collision. No, it is, it is fascinating. I mean, I've always been fascinated since a te- since I was a teenager with with Los Angeles, and um, you know, I try to make it down there every every summer for a little bit and it is it it, i always want to explore like a new area because there are so many worlds within that city it's it's unbelievable i don't know if i know of another city quite like that where you have all these pockets where it is completely cut off from the next town over um it's it's like endless you know i've I've explored it quite and you grew up there but so you know you know it well but it is it always has blown my mind and i i has i think your book does like you've mentioned like the class system there's a huge uh divide disconnect and resentment sure. on either you know on all sides towards each other so um I mean, and, and even in my pasadena and i'm going to explore this in my next novel mm-hmm. there's a bridge that goes over a freeway here on on the south side of the bridge it is wealth and private schools and Teslas mm-hmm. across this bridge, and it's beat up Hyundai's and liquor stores, and um, you know people living on um, government support, and um, you know not going to the big time colleges. It's uh, the wealth divide is. I mean, it's almost you know like uh, two tectonic plates yeah. that are smashing into each other, and eventually somebody's going to fall in. Right. You know? And I feel like that was somewhat the case in 1979. I mean, in, just to let you know, I mean, in the previous year, we passed a very controversial property tax measure that was very anti-government, that put more money in homeowners' pockets, took less from public needs. Um, and actually, uh, Richard, in my story, in his ambitious stars in his eyes dreams, he realized there's a lot of disposable cash around. We should go after that. Mm-hmm. Well, good. most get-rich schemes end in bankruptcy or in turmoil, and that's what happened here. Um, you know, we're, we're living in a world where there is more wealth being concentrated in fewer hands, and that's rubbing the tectonic plates of societal grievance, yeah. you know, a, a very much so. There, there is a disenchantment about America and uh, maybe more so than we need to because of social media. You know, ironically, back in the day, if Jerry and Richard, who were doing very well, had just listened to female instinct around them, <laughs> that this Howard guy is quiet and he may be a pro and damn good at his job, 
but there is something about him that is making the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Go do get a background search on it. Yeah. Go, you know, you know, find out about him. And none of them did. Of course, there wasn't, you know, uh, Facebook stalking and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, ways to go find somebody's digital fingerprint because there wasn't any thing being digitized. Right. It's, but but in, but female instinct would have saved a lot of heartache. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the like some of the the women that worked worked there, right? They were they they picked up on it uh, the first time they met Howard, right? Yeah, I mean, there was um, Richard's previous girlfriend who he broke up with rather cruelly. Was the office manager there, and she was a bit kind of a seventies hippie. Uh-huh. But um, I, I um, even though I'm not a journalist, I use a lot of journalism to develop this book by networking. Mm-hmm. I eventually got her phone number. And she was even, God, this is like almost 30 years later. She was still so skittish about this crime and potential other members of Howard's murder for hiring. It took me forever to get her to trust me, mm-hmm. to send me a picture of them back in the day, um, to meet me at a restaurant. And she told me when we met a person one time only, and unfortunately she's passed on to her next life. She told me when I first saw Howard, across the mansion floor that they worked out of this mansion, uh, I immediately knew he was bad news. Mm. And I told, I told the owners and they just disregarded it. You know, she instantly knew. Howard was a guy that had a bit of a vulturous aura. And, you know, vultures are quiet and they're observant and they're opportunistic and they're bloodthirsty. Mm. And, you know, um, you know, beware that quiet guy in the room with, uh, you know, who watches your movements and is in a way kind of doing a, um, uh, doing an analysis of how weak you are. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is like, it totally reminds me of a Coen Brothers film, like, like you, like you mentioned, it, he was so nefarious, like he, he is scary. I mean, just reading, just reading about him made the, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up and, um, I think just how how cruel and calculated uh, it was, like with, with uh, that family that he had befriended in his neighborhood, who who owned the garage, and um, he was willing to have them just wiped out over. He was, yeah. And I, as I posted on my website, I have pictures of of him playing Santa Claus in the early seventies, <laughs> holding the very children he sent his goons to possibly slaughter, mm-hmm. and. You know, Howard was never a Boy Scout. I, I personally believe there was some childhood trauma uh-huh. that he didn't talk about that fueled this hate inside him, especially towards men. Yeah. And might, might have been towards his dad. I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, he had been committing crimes since he was like 18 years old. And nobody else in his family had a police record, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Something in, in, in him snapped where he said, you know what, murder's okay, they deserve it. Torture is okay, they deserve it. Uh, extorting uh, my own, my old employer uh, is completely um, rational because I'm just doing to that to him what he's done to me. Right. Something in him snapped. And, you know, um, one of the most interesting parts of my book is the first assassin he recruits decides he doesn't want to be, you know, a killer. Right. Because right. if he went through with everything that Howard wanted him to do, he would have killed more people than the Manson family did. And um, he, uh, Howard went to extraordinary lengths to find him. 
I mean, he went to family friends of his and tied up the mom and dad in his house and stuck a gun in the, um, stuck a gun, I think in the mom's, in the, in the dad's mouth and then fired, fired the weapon real close to them and said, you tell me where Robert is or I'm coming back, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I suspect uh, this first hitman that decided he didn't want to do it. Uh, I, I think Howard maybe drunk or high told him a lot of secrets. Like I've got bodies buried where you wouldn't, have, you won't believe. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, it wasn't just about this guy knowing about a murder plot. He knew Howard's deadly secrets. That's what, I, you know, and, and he tried, this hitman tried to disrupt this murder. And, um, but there was a momentum towards it that could not be stopped. And I think that's the most tragic element. I mean, the victim of this crime had, had two daughters. He had a wife who still loved him. Yes, he was, he was a very messed up human being, but he didn't deserve, you know, a sure. high caliber bullet fired through a plate glass window. Right. And he did seem like, um, I don't know, hopefully this is not a spoiler, but just uh, Richard. Yeah. You know, he had seemed like he he had some warning that this could happen to him. This w- would likely happen to him, but he didn't seem to take it, uh, at, at least on the surface, you know, like he didn't believe that it could happen. So he kind of didn't want to be terrorized. So that was the impression I got. So he kind of just went along with his life and like, Oh, what, you know, I'm handling it, blah, blah, blah. So it was like, it or, had, or he, signs. Or, yeah, there were signs. You're exactly right. Yeah. Or, or he, he was so depressed. He didn't care. And, uh, and I think it was almost like suicide by, by, by hitman or, you know, he'd been able to skate away from so much uh, irresponsibility despicable behavior, flakiness before. And he just thought, you know what? This is LA. I can do it again. But right. he didn't know who he was messing with. I mean, you know, that, that, that to me is terrifying. By the time this murder happened, the LAPD had, had been told about it. Two famous lawyers had heard it. One, a future California Supreme Court justice. Another, a future member of OJ Simpson's mm-hmm. uh, legal defense team, the dream team. Um, Others knew about it. I mean, it was like the world's most, it was like the world's worst secret. There was people coming for this man and um, they'd already tried many, many times to take him out. He mm-hmm. knew it and yet he stayed around. Interesting. So that just tells you something about his mindset. As I just wrote in an essay, he should have been on the Concord to a remote village. Really? Yeah, seriously. I mean, he had, I, I think maybe like definitely a charming person he charmed his way out of so many situations it sounds like so maybe you know yeah the combination of you know his he was going through um sounds like a breakup with his wife and and he was partly suicidal part like used to used to getting his way based off his charm and i don't know it's a fascinating fascinating story i mean and his wife gets, you know, I don't want to do a spoiler alert, and I really hope people read the book. Mm-hmm. His wife was about the same age of, as Jerry, 12, 13 years younger than, than, than Richard, who was on the cusp of turning 40. And, um, you know, she, she hears about the threats to him, begs him to take it seriously, and they get into a monster fight. I think that sent him careening into a spiral. Mm-hmm. And uh, days later, you know, their worst dreams came true. And then they learned about the real 
mastermind and what he had done. And oh my God, you know, the guy was a white supremacist, anti-Semitic. Um, I mean, he was like a two-legged reptile. Mm-hmm. And I do say in the opening, you know, there's, you know, it may, we not be, we're not Florida um, in California, but there's swampland. It just flats, flat land where creatures <laughs> go around and jump on the vulnerable. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I encourage people to definitely pick up this book, The, the Darkest Glare. It's, it's, it's outstanding. I did want to ask you, um, the, at the end of the, the copy that I have, you have a kind of a short story. Yeah about a, a cult yep. uh, essentially i was fascinated with this yep. um is this going to be a book that we can look forward to or is this just a little taste of something you um had put in that an- anthology through rare bird before yeah that's a good question yeah this is a story that already came out in an anthology but i wanted to add to it and build on it I, i'm not planning to write another book about it i mean it's this is the story behind the famous snake in the mailbox attack in November, 1978, that shocked the world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I went and learned more about this attack, it, it got basically its version of Twitter um, uh, um, uh, exposure. How, Walter Cronkite back when, you know, the CBS evening news was, you know, uh, the CNN of its time, Walter Cronkite talked about this, attack as did Chevy Chase on Saturday Night Live before he left. Mm-hmm. You know you're big when you get those two polar <laughs> opposites. Yeah. The mainstream media and then the counterculture media. Yeah, and this is about um, a cult that had begun as a, a cold turkey drug and alcohol detox, you know, in a scruffy part of Los Angeles out in the Venice Santa Monica area, uh, mutated into an alternative society, uh, supposedly sober. And then, um, uh, and and, uh, and uh, braced by the mainstream and, and getting corporate money, government support. You know, this is the '70s. We were experimenting, but uh, it, it ended like all things. It was, you know, um, there was a group of people uh, trying to militarize it, including the leader. As threats came out, and there was allegations of financial impropriety, child abuse, etc. And you know. Uh, a, a demagogue is a very dangerous thing when they're cornered. They're mm-hmm. almost like a serpent, you know. And uh, there, it, it was this match between this uh, gruff old man who was once an American hero for getting people sober and dealing with troubled kids, and now he is coming uh, unraveled and wants to send a message to authorities and others: don't mess with us. And he sent hitman to, to kill a lawyer who dared to challenge them. And uh, um, there was two, um, uh, there was a lot of stakes writing on it, but it was such an interesting, I, I like the idea that there's two men from different worlds mm-hmm. and an inevitable rendezvous together. And they did. And uh, it was a sad, terrible story, but also one where I really wanted to praise the man that stood up to, to Sinanon, um, uh, which I asked people to go check out, mm-hmm. Sinanon with a Y, and go look at that and compare it to QAnon, and you're going to see parallels. Xenophobia, ignorance, brainwashing, um, you know, uh, calls to violence, uh, ideas of disenfranchisement, you know, um, the concept that there's too much freedom, you know, in the United States. Right. So anyway, yeah, I, I really like that story. No, it's fast. I'd never heard of the group before, so it was like 
totally had my attention. It was it was fascinating. And it just made me think like the more I read about 1970s Los Angeles, the more yeah. terrifying that time period seemed. I mean, like you have serial killers all over the place and and then just what I read from your from your book. I mean, serial killers, white flight, people getting guns. There's becoming more there's a lot more tension between the LAPD and historically yeah. black areas. There was a killing of a woman named Eula Love who uh, got into a standoff with cops over an unpaid gas bill. And they eventually, you know, they motor down. Oh, wow. And um, it, it, in a way, was one of the first antecedents of the LA riots in 92, mm -hmm. 13 mm -hmm. years later. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, even though I was a footloose, rambunctious, girl crazy kid, I didn't realize, you know, I, I mean, I should have realized more. There's just a lot of anger in the air. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, I mean, it's definitely, uh, you could go on and on. I mean, like, like I said, the more I hear about stuff, I'm like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And then, you know, yeah. it sounds like a pretty, pretty interesting, scary, fun time. Like it, it's everything it's complicated, you know, just like any time period, I guess, but man, I've been blown away. And like the movies that came out of the seventies too. I mean, I, um, when I was younger and started kind of discovering, older films you know yeah. for, for, from my point of view uh i was amazed at like the, the movies the films from the 1970s um i mean the, the good the good ones that have lasted uh just some of the the darkness that is shown in those and i mean they're incredible films like i'm just thinking like taxi driver and uh, deer hunter deer hunter yeah kramer yeah versus kramer. think about all what it's saying about america kramer yeah. and kramer about divorce you know, decay of the nuclear family, um, uh, you know, uh, um, um, wives dissatisfied with their lives, mm -hmm. deer hunter about Vietnam, friendship, you know, um, suicide, all this, I mean, network about, you know, a rotted America, mm -hmm. you know, uh, um, uh, here's, listen to this, um, Three Mile Island occurred, right, where the melt, a nuclear plant meltdown only days um, only days after a film came out about that exact same time called the China syndrome. It was uh, art projecting reality about wow. to happen, you know, and um, there was a great film called Miracle on Ice about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team uh, winning over the Soviets. Mm -hmm. That lifted the American spirit. I remember I was a kid. We were all so caught up in that. Well, we shouldn't have been dependent on a friggin' hockey game to feel good about ourselves. <laughs> yeah. That's how dark it was. Yeah, it, it truly was. And we're kind of at that moment now. I really want there to be something for America, for all of us to stop squabbling and seeing what mm -hmm. unites us. I don't, maybe it will be the next Olympics or... Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it it is interesting. I mean, because I, I was born in 1981, um, so that's my <laughs> that's that's my perspective. Yeah. But I, I do, you know, I, I read. I mean, I'm a history teacher. I read a lot yeah. on history, and it it just seems like, um, I I'm sure the stuff is out there, but I, I feel like the late 60s um, and all the 70s it's been a challenging, it's taken decades to kind of have a commentary yeah. on it. That kind of makes some sense because there's so many components. There's, you know, it's, it's like insane. The amount of different things that were going on. Yeah. You have, you have Vietnam, you have civil rights. Um, you have this anger bubbling up. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I can, t I can completely see the parallels with today where it is like we, 
you know, I, I talk about it with my students about um, what do you think people 2020, what are people going to talk? How are they going to write the history of 2020 in 20 years in 30 years? What do you think? And um, you know, it's, they were, they're living it and they're having a hard time. Like, well, you know, the pandemic, then you have the, 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 the intense political um scene QAnon, all these different things i mean it's like yeah where do you where do you start how do you how do you make sense of all this i mean it's it's a challenging thing but it's fascinating too and, and, yeah and, and ask him this you know I, um, it's yeah, when you talk about conspiracy theories and mm-hmm. i don't think there was many conspiracy theories in the late 70s there were just people pissed off people <laughs> people that wanted their share i mean the 60s was a lot about redistribution of wealth community peace, love, the late seventies where I want mine. It was kind of a preview of the eighties and Gordon mm-hmm. Gecko. Um, but you know, with, with QAnon and even Synanon, they do rely on conspiracy theories. Uh-huh. And it's the idea that if not for these collusions and power grabs and secret, to, secret uh, wealth earning, power grabbing entities, our life would be good if not for this. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you know, that tells you a level of collective delusionment, almost like collective mental illness that want to believe in an alternative reality to, to justify why their life isn't going as well as they were told it could go. Right. So, I mean, there's America needs a psychiatrist. No, it is fascinating because I do have a lot of students who um, over the, the last, I would say four years or so who, who are uh, who are all for conspiracy theories. Like they want to, you know, we have a good time in class, but they also are like, well, you know, have you seen this YouTuber who I watched this guy on YouTube and he said this and that, and it, it is a little startling. And these are, these are kids in advanced classes, you know, college place classes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bit startling. The, the amount of kids who, you know, think there's some kind of conspiracy with like 9-11 even. So I don't know if it's like, it, uh, we talk about that. I'm like, well, why do you think, Yeah, you know, is it just more interesting to you? I mean, the story, a conspiracy theory is, of course, interesting. Um, but I love that point you just made. I mean, I'm going to bring that up to him for sure. Um, kind of taking, you know, blaming an, an outside force, um, not taking responsibility, um exactly and ask them let's say okay you want to believe in a conspiracy theory about let's say the election was stolen mm-hmm. oh, okay what happens if there was a conspiracy about you that you are an <laughs> alien okay yeah. how would you respond well you would want some i mean it's ludicrous but you would want somebody to apply clear rational logic to it uh-huh. and um you know i went to a difficult prep school and they drilled into our heads use the scientific method, mm-hmm. hypothesis, observation, uh, identification, replica- replication, all those things, or, uh, apply that to a conspiracy theory against you. And, and that's what right. you would want people that are unsure about whether it's true or not to do. There is like, there is this massive cognitive dissonance. And I mean, I even feel it myself. And for my next books, I want to block out the noise because mm-hmm. there's a lot of things buzzing in these kids ears and oh, yeah. it's harder to be a kid they need to they need to be taught to think 
critically. Yeah. If you see it on Fox and you want to believe it, fine. Go out and do some research. Right. Is everybody in on a conspiracy? So, so if you if if Donald Trump said murder is skyrocketing in Las Vegas, well, you know what? There's something called the FBI crime statistics. Mm-hmm. You know, you go look that up. Is it really true? What do the numbers tell you? Yeah. Not what's some coming out of somebody's mouth. No, it's so true. We talk uh, the, the first week of school. I I do a lesson on confirmation bias, and we 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 discuss like. Um, I think I heard this on NPR. It was talking about conspiracy theories and they said something like, like the JFK assassination or, or nine 11 happens and people, the, the conspiracy theories immediately pop up and they continue. Um, but with something where like Ronald Reagan was shot, he wasn't killed. Oh, it was just a crazy guy who shot Ronald Reagan. Um, so the, the, the idea is if, if Reagan had actually been killed, conspiracy theories would have popped out of that. Um, so when something so huge and unexplainable happens, um, we want to come to some level of certainty as a, as a people and you can't get there. And it's like, no, something just, you know, horribly random and, and there are ways to prevent, prevent it, but it got through the cracks and it, you know, this tragedy, um, happened and that's basically it they want to have something more definitive and and explaining it and um yeah so i don't know yeah i mean what you're seeing is the culmination of a lot of societal trends i mean the beginning of donald trump uh can be traced back to mtv and the real world Mm -hmm. i know you were a little kid yeah no i remember i remember watching it as a you know the real world was the was a you know it was foreboding that news is going to be disguised the entertainment is going to be disguised as news or reality Mm -hmm. to observe something is to change something so you don't think those people on real you know on the real world were performing for the cameras of course they were they're sure and we're seeing this trend and trend entertainment and news are not the same things i love cnn i once wanted to work for cnn and i did a great freelance gig with CNN about the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Unfortunately, I feel they've, I mean, Fox was so far to the right and trafficking conspiracy theories. I think CNN wanted to go the opposite way. Mm-hmm. They don't traffic conspiracy theories, but they have their biases. And, they, and they've also allowed entertainment to bleed into news, you know? And I'm not, I think that's really a bad thing. I think yeah. you should have opinions and then you should have facts. And if I had my way, on the next presidential election, I, I would say, okay, you, you're the candidate. You have to agree to get a censor embedded in you. And um, the first time we're going to have a AI machine on stage with you. And the first time you friggin' lie about the border or climate change or a vaccine, you're going to get a um, you're going to get some juice. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, the system is the solution. Truth is the solution, mm-hmm. but people are brainwashed because they want to believe something to justify their life. We're screwed. That's the worst thing this last administration done, did. Mm-hmm. Made us doubt the truth, what we saw with our eyes. Yeah, there's a, I don't know if you've heard, I forget the name of it. I'm watching it. It's on HBO right now. And it, it's a documentary series on QAnon, like the, yeah. the origins of it. I, I think they've just, uh, have you seen that? I have not. It's, uh, I forget the name, but it's, it's, um, they're putting out an episode a week. So they're on episode three right now. It's fascinating. Yeah. This guy just kind of, you know, I sure. mean, no, you know, stuff I had no clue on. And it is like, 
interesting. And he get definitely gets into the, you know, he falls around uh, your, your, you know, quote unquote average American who does believe in this. And you, you get a sense when you, like when you see them in their home individually, you can have some empathy towards them. Like you can see, you can see humanity. Um, but when they're outside of their home and like protesting and screaming and wearing these crazy shirts and, and signs that have too many words on them, uh, it's like, I can't read that sign. There's like a, there's like three paragraphs of, of stuff, but yeah, um, well, they seem well, crazy well, in that context. What, what, <laughs> blood drinking, baby killing, you know, <laughs> uh, political pedophiles is it's hard to get on a bumper sticker. It is. It's a lot. It's a lot going on there. So. <laughs> but I would say to you, if you really um, look deeply into their life, something terrible happened to them, something tragic, something disappointing. They lost the job to a person of color. They um, some some of the benefits of their suburban life was affected when somebody an opposite party was elected. And instead of reacting normally or within the system, they're lashing out and um, just going with their, uh, go, letting the wrong part of their brain govern their behavior. So it's things aren't going too well. That's sure. what actually happened in, in my book. And, and Howard was so diabolical for always recruiting bottom scrape. I mean, it's kind of almost, they would, they would have been maggot people, but kind of bottom scraping. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks that saw no future and he whipped them up. He whipped up the resentment, uh, promised them riches um, and made sure that if he took a fall, they were going to take the blame in the end. And and that was, I mean, one of the crazy things about, about him is that after he pulls off multiple murders, he had like a hundred people petrified of him. Yet he's going around in his El Camino trying to get jobs, generate some income. You know, between the time he pulled off one thing and how he's arrested, he worked for the California Association of Realtors doing an overhaul of their office. This is a trade group dedicated to real estate integrity. They had a multi, multi murderer, you know, uh, supervising that job. Right. And, um, you know, I think the LAPD could take quite a bit of blame for how they handled this case. They let him roam for two months. Right. I was, I was completely in shock. I'm, I mean, you know, openly threatening, threatening people and he was just getting away with it and, and was getting going away about with, his life. He had like as good at Intel going on. I mean, he, you know, um, they were, yes, they were trying to build a bigger case against the badass. Mm-hmm. You know, they, <laughs> and they got a sense of how terrible he was and they were trying to pin other murders on him, but they have to build a case that's going to result in a guilty victory and, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Right. And, but Jerry and others sure had their lives turned upside down as they did that. But it's, um, I, I was, you know, I mean, it was LA was so violent <laughs> that, this case that put Jerry in disguise under protection of an Israeli commando, uh, taking all kinds of weird protection, stashing his family away, almost losing his family over this. You know, um, what can he do? I mean, the, the, the murder happened and there wasn't even a front page story about it. It commanded this little space yeah. on a back page because there was so much violence and turmoil and anger in LA. That, mm. That's, you know, so uh, this is the worst time to be on the run. I guess that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was, yeah, just an unreal story. And I mean, I, I'd have mentioned it, you know, multiple times and I've been talking about it with friends, but this is definitely yeah. a book uh, 
you got to check out. I mean, it reads like a, a novel, you know, it's hard to believe that this happened, but you know, the, the proof is there. It did happen. And it's, it's a, it's a wild story. Yeah, I've had people, I've had trouble getting people to believe it's true. <laughs> I've had trouble getting people to accept, you know, this is the Los Angeles you live in. I don't think people want to hear. Right. In fact, the man who pulled the trigger during the trial gave the jury a little criminal tour of the city that actually is, not the city you're seeing from a, 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 your car window in traffic mm -hmm. or you know on a plane ride coming into LAX, the LA where you can get a hit on somebody for 500 bucks. Yeah. You know, if you know the right people, you go to the right bars. You know, I mean, I think they must have been horrified hearing that. Um, and I did not want to write this like your average true crime book. Mm -hmm. I, I can't do that. I'm just, you know, uh, I, I, you know, a lot of true crime books are fantastic, but I feel like they're very procedural. They don't get into the humanity of it. They don't follow the characters afterwards. They sort of just treat it like a sequence. I wanted to write a drama. Yeah. Well, no, you succeeded because I, I don't typically, I've read a, I don't read a lot of true crime. Um, I'm not opposed to it, but I, um, yeah, it did not, it does not fit the stereotype of a true yeah. crime formula. Um, so it's, it's incredible. Kind of a, just a side note, um, just for, for LA people, I, I like the, well, the mention of Hillside Memorial Park, the cemetery right. off the 405. Yep. Um, I mean, I guess I, I've just been there several times and I was like, I, yeah, I, yeah, I love cemeteries in Los Angeles. I, every time I'm down there, I've been to quite a few of them. And next time you come out, let's go do a, we should go do a podcast from there. Oh, that would be incredible. Yeah. People, that place people is, will have a surprise guest. That would be, <laughs> let's do it. Um, that is an interesting, um, well, all of them have their own thing, but like with the Al Jolson waterfall, Al Jolson is buried there at the top. Um, it's a, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Oh, that's the Westwood, right? That's Westwood. Oh, I'm sorry. This was. But you, yeah. you mentioned both of them. No, like the Westwood is like. Yeah. Yes. The, there's a burial Hillcrest. Right. right? Yeah. But but and he's he's told given legal quote unquote legal advice. Right. Westwood Memorial Park. Right. Yep. Yep. Really yep. Is. That that place is unreal how many like celebrities are packed in right next wow. to each other that tiny little cemetery yeah Marilyn Monroe's there and um I I was staying the afterlife yeah I mean it's a I was there a couple of years ago I did a thing at UCLA and um and walked down and it's it's yeah. quite unbelievable how this little cemetery is just packed in amongst all these business right. you know and you blink if you you blink you know uh, and you pass it yeah yeah yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful place. So that was it's kind of cool. Um, you know, have hearing like reading something about that and, and yeah. kind of visualizing like, oh, I've been there, visualizing um what was going on, you know. Yeah, at some point after I get backed up, I'm going to go around to many of the key sites in the book. Uh-huh. Just take pictures and, and comment about it. I mean, I don't think I'll do another true crime book. I, I just don't I I am too I, I feel like I have <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm, I have the strong enough stuff inside. Yeah. You know, there's a whole world of true crime. A lot of it can be a little, not, not boilerplate, but it's kind of, it can be a mill of, you know, the one writer finds the next murder and they jump to the next. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I, I every time I write this story, I think about the victim's kids and his wives and his parents and others that loved him. 
and I'm not trying to do this for my own glory. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, I'm a writer. So of course I'm thinking about my career, but it's just not worth it to right. go in and, and take the darkest moment in somebody's life and say, oh, by the way, now it's for sale on a shelf. You know, I don't, I just, I, I know there's a purpose for that. And there's an um, information, educational element to writing true crime. So, so somebody is protected better next, but it takes strong stuff. And yeah. It's well, it's, it seems like, I mean, like you said, this was like over 20 years in the making and you knew Jerry um, was pretty, pretty well. It sounds like, so he was opening up to you and telling you these things. And then you were playing this little game kind of where you'd go check and like, Oh, Oh my goodness, this is actually right. true. And then he'd give you more. So um, it sounds like he was, he was ready to tell his story to someone who, you know, you're, you're a writer. So obviously maybe was that, did he know that maybe you had an idea or did this idea for the book come much later? I think he would not want to nudge me to write a book. You know, I told him if I was going to ever do it, I was going to do it free and clear and I'm not going to make, say, make him something he's not. Uh, um, you know, I'd be honest with him. And um, he, I, I I think he wanted like a self exorcism mm-hmm. in writing the book because he was a good, complicated person who could be very clever, mysterious, and sometimes not cruel, but he, he knew how to antagonize people and get under their skin. And um, there's no doubt that he learned lessons from his two ex partners. Mm-hmm. You know, as I say, you know, Howard, the bad guy, could think two and three steps ahead. Richard with his charm and, and um, smile and salesmanship with the, you know, Jerry learned all those things, but you know, when you take part of one person, you're taking more than you want. And it was, I feel like those ghosts were always on his shoulder. I honestly do. And when you sat down with Jerry, there was a little, there was like something in his eyes that wasn't settled. There was, mm-hmm. there was a nervousness and he would rub his hands and that's things that, you know, he did when he was anxious and, I think he wanted somebody to believe that he was a hero because maybe he needed to convince himself. Right. No, it, it's fascinating. I mean, um, oh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, sometimes like, I, you know, I just had a birthday. I turned 40 a couple of weeks ago. And you, thanks. Um, so I think I'm now I'm more conscious than ever. I'm always comparing myself like with uh, just thinking about stories and people that i knew of growing up and i always thought oh they're so old they're in their late 30s and now i'm like i'm older than a lot of these these people but it is it is surprising like reading um you know like jerry was like in his late 20s uh last night i talked to uh the director i don't know if you've heard of heard or seen on netflix um a new documentary series called murder among the mormons um Excellent, excellent documentary. I highly recommend it. But I talked to him and, you know, the people involved with with that story, this world-class forger of documents was in his mid-20s. Um, yep. It's just, it's, it's, I don't know. It's just kind of a wild thing to think, you know, people in their 20s and, and some of these situations that they were dealing with. Like, I certainly am grateful. I wasn't 20 five dealing with some of the you know murder i mean that's terrifying i don't know how it, it was at any think, age yeah i mean howard was near 50 i'm in my 50s mm-hmm. but he's he's 50 looking at jerry he's 27 he's looking at richard he's 39 
and saying, you know what, I deserve to be doing as well as they are. I'm a blue collar. I've paid my dues. Why are these college boys <laughs> succeeding and cheating me? Only one was. Mm-hmm. Richard was looking at Jerry thinking he's 27. You know, I, I can run circles around him with my schemes and plans and ploys, you know, and uh, I mean, Jerry was kind of an older 27, but he still didn't know the world very well. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't, he hadn't had a lot of girlfriends. He, uh, you know, he was clever and smart, but he was very unworldly. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the perfect target. He was the perfect target. You know, both of these men and his employees, before they turned on each other, he, they, they were the ones rubbing their hands saying, <laughs> we're going to make a meal out of him. Right. You know? So, um, yeah, um, sometimes you've got to be careful what you wish for. He, he had very precocious success, mm-hmm. but it left him too willing to say yes to older people. Interesting. Interesting. Um, okay. So I know um, I... I was on that event that you did. Is it, is it Vromans? Is that what yeah. it's called? Okay. Over in past bookstore in Pasadena. Right. Um, I encourage people to purchase the book. Please do support Vromans. Been at bookstores. They need your help. They've had a heck of a tough time during the pandemic. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So I'll put, I'll put links to Vromans um, w- with a uh, chip's new book in there. Um, as well as Arroyo paperback that recently came out. I highly recommend that as well. Do you have any events coming up that we should be aware of? I know everything's virtual. Um, I did definitely enjoy the, the, the Q and a, or the, you know, the, the interaction you had with your friend. Um, my friend the, Sal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was he great. is trying, he is a true crime pro, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, miles above me in terms of experience and doing these types of things. He's got a book coming out about, um, uh, the first serial killer um, and how the FBI learned a profile. It's called Shadow Man. I can't wait to read it. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm working. Um, I'm sorry. I do have an event coming up uh, for Arroyo through a um, place called the Gamble House, which is a famous craftsman home and it's become like a museum to the Green and Green Brothers who innovated that type of uh, building. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And then I um, that's going to be in April. It's on my website. And in May, I'm going to be appearing at Pasadena Lit Fest, promoting The Darkest Glare with some other really good true crime people. Great. So you can check that out. It's on my site. And, um, you know, I'm already working on my next stuff. And um, that's all I know how to do. You know? Well, no, that's great. I mean, I love it. It's so. This is, this is my, this is, I, I play guitar. This is my <laughs> That's He's holding up a keyboard, folks. Um, it no, like- it, was, it was so great having you on. Again, you're my first repeat. So wow. uh, that means you're, you're producing work faster than everyone else. So everyone else I've talked to get, get on with it. Uh, sure. <laughs> well, hopefully the next one's going to be out in t- late 2022. So I hope I can come back on. Absolutely. Yeah. Every time. I mean, I love, I, mean, I love your great, work. You're, you're doing a great service to authors. You ask questions, you make it comfortable, you know, and I, I will help spread the word. And, you know, it doesn't seem like you're in Utah. It seems like you're sitting right here. And yeah. A, you know, latte. Yeah, no, this is great. So Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, Chip, thanks again. And um, uh, we will definitely keep in touch. And, you know, I'm putting all the links in there for for your book. It's a uh, uh, yeah. Like I said, people definitely pick this one up. Um, it's incredible. And we look forward to, you know, reading more from you and having you on um, when the next book comes out. 
thank you so much. And then when you come down to LA, we're going to do something at Home Cemetery. I will. I will. Um, I will let you know. I might be down there this summer. You know, I'm all vaccinated, so you know, we'll see how it goes. So I'm I will keep to get you a shot tomorrow, and I cannot wait. Oh, good. So yeah, I will let you know if I'm coming down. Um, we can go hit a cemetery or two. <laughs> That's good. I'm just hoping my shot will improve my IQ. But, you know. <laughs> Mine certainly didn't. So, you know, maybe you have better luck. <laughs> All right. Well, God bless. Thanks again. Uh, I love coming on your show. Great. Thanks, Trip. All right, man. See ya. Okay. Have a good one.